Awesome. It's good to have you guys back. If you've been to one of uh, our gatherings or maybe heard me speak in general, you know that I like to bring a topic that tries to reframe and challenge what you believe about God. It's not the easy way to preach. I'll tell you that much. Like we could much rather have a good time, like with a softball, easy message. But I'm intrigued by this notion of an eternal creator and how that I'm so convicted that we misunderstand so much of, of his nature and his character. And I thoroughly believe that God is the most misunderstood topic person in the universe. And no matter where you're at in your faith, we know we've got people from all walks from here, from whether you are a passionate follower of Jesus, whether you're a seeker, whether you're agnostic, whether you're atheist, we know we've got a lot of different people here. You probably have undiscovered lies and misunderstandings about God and who he truly is. And I've been following Jesus for well over 30 years. <clears throat> Not that old, but no, I'm 40, but a long time in my life. And enough times where even in the past year, the past two years, finding things I believe my entire life about God that simply are not true. And so it's my deep belief that these lies that we have in our belief system, these misunderstandings, inhibit our ability to have authentic relationship with God. And this is important because the reward of believing in God is not necessarily eternal life. Well, it's, it's that, right? But the reward is actually experiencing relationship with God and living a transformed life in the here and now. So many of us are approaching God as this topic of like after, after the afterlife. And it's so much more than that. And when you examine what we believe about God the Father and what we maybe have been raised with or maybe we've heard about, you often get a picture of someone who more closely resembles the Godfather instead. Somebody who is capricious, temperamental, maybe ruthless. Someone who might disconnect your car brakes if you do something wrong. And when we think about the things that we think that God does and the way he works in the world and, and maybe in pain and suffering, like we actually have an image of a God who's actually not lovable at all. And the last two times I poked at these different kind of topics and misunderstandings, specifically what happened on the cross and what about the Garden of Eden, these like foundational narratives, because if we change the story we believe in our head about who God is, we completely change what we believe about who he is. And so tonight's topic is probably the one topic that seems to ensnare the most people, no matter where you are in the spectrum. This one topic keeps atheists in a state of disbelief. This one topic keeps seekers on the sideline. This one topic causes many Christians, myself included, to have incredible doubts. This one topic leaves many Christians without an answer to life's hardest questions. Here it is. How can we believe in a good God when there is such evil, pain, and suffering in the world? How do I believe in God and trust in him with all the pain in my life? There's people here that are going through immense, tragic situations, immense human suffering. And how do we reconcile and believe in a God who says that he is good? And right now, there are millions of people around the world facing that hardship, the suffering, the trials, and they are crying out. Why God? When something terrible happens, people either ask, where is God? Or often if you're Christians, you say, well, God, what are you doing? And unfortunately, I found Christians to be some of the least helpful people when you're facing a hardship. Christians will, awful, will often try to console those who are hurting suffering in a trial or a challenge by rationalizing their pain 
with some statement about God. Let me give you a few. These are all from personal experience. To one who tragically lost a loved one, a Christian might say, it's okay, God is in control. To someone who's facing a disease or life-threatening condition, a Christian might say, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. To someone who lost a child, a Christian might say, well, everything happens for a reason. We had a close friend who lost two baby girls, and the Christians consoling her were like, well, God just needed them more in heaven than here. Not helpful. To someone who's faced trauma or abuse, a Christian might say, well, God's ways are higher than your ways. In response to the world that, frankly, right now is ravaged with evil, famine, war, disease, you name it, injustice, it's all there. A typical Christian might say, well, it's all part of God's plan. These rationalizations are not only insufficient for understanding how God could be good, they're actually harmful. These explanations create purpose and motive and intentionality behind the worst human experiences and then attaches them to God and expects us to say God is good. Some of you, again, here are facing incredibly painful and difficult situations. And likely Christian has said one of these harmful things to you. Now, why is that? I mean, these are wonderful people. I mean, I used to say these things. Now, why, why are Christians giving us those lines, the problem of evil and these, these challenges? Well, by and large, Christians believe that everything that happens on earth is part of God's will. They believe that if it happened, it was because God wanted it to happen. He ordained it to happen, and he made it so. And they believe that every detail of life is orchestrated and ordained to happen as part of God's sovereignty and his control. And the reason they do this, and it really comes from a good position, is Christians believe the best way to ascribe all power and all glory to God is to attribute everything that happens as a result of his doing. They think that God is most powerful, most glorified by saying, well, everything, that blade of grass, these tacos we had, that sun, you know, that they... It means well until it's about human suffering. And through this lens, every detail, every event, every outcome on earth gets rationalized according to God's plan. And you can see how this gets really messy, especially when you consider politics and maybe geopolitical topics. But by and large, the biggest problem is human suffering and tribulations. How can God be even considered to be good when he is authoring trials, tribulations, and suffering. And the atheist or the agnostic will look at evil, will look at the current events, will look at any part of the world and see human suffering and say, a God who is responsible for suffering and, and evil is unlovable. And you know what? I agree with them. A good God who afflicts his children with sickness, disease, and sends hurricanes, evil rulers, calamity, can't possibly be good, right? And even if you believe in Jesus, hardships pose a very major threat to your faith even when you encounter them. And it's not uncommon for many Christians to leave the faith because they encountered a hardship and they could not reconcile how a good God allowed that to happen in their life. So a nice, easy topic tonight. Aren't you so glad? And there's no way I can really fully do this topic justice without a much longer month together. So we're going to do an abbreviated talk on this, but I wanted to give you some truth and, and revelations from the Bible 
to dismantle this broken understanding that we have about God's responsibility for evil in the world. Because there's so much pain and suffering in the world. And maybe, again, this is your life right now. And while I can't fix your pain, I can't help with whatever you've gone through and the, the challenges you've gone through, what I can do hopefully tonight is to detach God from being responsible from your pain. And if we can do that, we open up the possibility to ask the questions, what is relationship with God like? Because so many people refuse even the topic because they can't understand and justify the pain in their life. You guys ready? All right, so let's start with the first and biggest misunderstanding about evil, which is why would a good God create evil and allow it in the world? Well, the first thing is that God did not create evil. Believing God created evil could be one of the biggest lies one could believe about him. And if God created evil, can he even be, by that definition, be considered good? We have a major problem. And if you read the creation story, if anybody wants my notes, by the way, I'm not going to ask you to turn Bibles and things like that. I'll tell you what I'm referencing. But if anybody wants what I'm referencing, I'll be happy to send you my notes because there's a lot here. But as you read the creation story, what's the continual theme? He created it, and it was good. Every step of the way through the creation process, it was good. James 1.17 says this, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And I don't know about you, but I've never defined cancer, disease, suffering to fit that description. I just haven't had that happen in my life. Jeremiah 29.11, a lot of people have that on bracelets and tattoos. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That's God speaking to his people. And I don't know about you, but pandemics, injustice, War or famine don't sound like plans to prosper us very well. And so throughout the Bible, you find over and over again God's good nature. And nowhere in the Bible do we find proof that God created evil. So then why do we have evil? Or a better question is, why God does allow evil? And the answer is, God didn't allow evil in the world. He allowed the possibility of evil in the world. And that's different. He didn't allow evil. He allowed for the possibility for evil. And that's extremely important to know the difference there is that when God created us with freedom and free will to choose God, that was part of the requirement to allow to have us to have a loving relationship with him is that we have the possibility to say no. Our free choice lets us choose God or reject God or to choose another path. But why would God give us a free choice? Couldn't he just make us hardwired to love him? No, because love is only love if it has a choice. I run a tech company. I don't do this for a living. So if you guys don't like it, I please come back. But it won't, um, won't bother me too much. Oh, it won't bother me, but it's not my career. <laughs> I, I make software for a living. I could write a program that tells me, Eric, I love you a thousand times a day. Eric, you're so muscular. Eric, I could have it say whatever I want. Is it going to have any meaning? No. It would be utterly meaningless. What makes love love is that it has a choice. And so God did not create evil. He created beings that are good but have the possibility for evil because love requires choice. What makes my wife's love for me and mine for hers real love is that it was a choice. Choice is at the epicenter of love. And without a choice to say no, there is no such thing as love. And when my wife said, I do, 19 years ago, 14, 18 years ago, <laughs> a long time ago, that's the point. When my wife said, I do, 
It wasn't that she said yes to me, although that was really important. It's that on that day, she said no to 4 billion other people. That felt good. How about coercion? Coercion doesn't work either for love, right? Now, if I said, Camille, love me, or I'm going to throw you into an internal fiery furnace forever. Now, she might comply with the order, but I will never have her heart. And isn't that how so many Christians share the gospel? Just got uncomfortable in here. Rather than connecting people to relationship with God, they use the fear of hell to win them to God, not realizing that they might win their behavior and their words, but I fully believe they're strange in their hearts. That just because you can win somebody with the fear of hell does not mean you win their heart to God. And in our gospel message, we must always appeal to love and relationship with God rather than the flames of hell. I'm not trying to minimize the consequences of what happens. I'm just saying, it'd be like, tell my wife, marry me because, and stay married to me because divorce is really expensive. You know, it's like it's totally the wrong motivator, right? And so we want to have this relationship with God where it's like, I choose you, and you chose me. And because I have a no, it makes this thing love meaningful. And so real love is rooted in having a real choice. And the fact that we have free will and free choice proves that you and I were designed for love. Because love is only possible where there's choice. But with choice comes the possibility to reject God. And mankind was created good but had the possibility of evil because love requires a choice. And it is better for us to be free and have the possibility of evil so we can choose love rather than have no choice at all. Because otherwise we're just robots. And at the fall, mankind made a choice against God. So, okay, maybe you might give me that. But what about the devil? Right? Someone out there is thinking that, that God created an evil being to tempt Adam and Eve with some forbidden fruit. Aha! See, God creating the devil means that God created evil, right? Well, one of the complications for Christians and the problem of evil is they commonly believe this, that God created the devil. And if you really think about this, that, you know, you think of that God created this maybe rubber suit guy with a pitchfork and horns, and, but that God created a very specific being to cause evil and torment, and suffering, that God, a good God, created that. We would never tolerate that in the natural. It'd be like, it'd be like asking a known child abuser to come and live in your house and stay with your kids. Like, you would never do it. But somehow, we've embraced and accepted this little fact about God that, oh, God created the most evil force on the planet and is responsible for all these things. And we have a major issue with that. And so to suggest that God would intentionally create an adversary to tempt and torment us is not a good and loving God. And so I agree with the atheists, and I agree with the agnostics here. So how do we understand the devil in the light of a good God? Well, let me ask you a question. When did sin first occur? Someone shout it out. It's an easy question. The Garden of Eden. Good Bible study school when I was kid grew up. I have the world, when I get to heaven, 
I'm going to have the world record number of salvations because I pledged my life in Bible school every single Sunday for about 19 years. But anyways, when did sin originally occur? The Garden of Eden. That's what we've all been taught possibly, but that's what we've heard. I would suggest that sin first entered mankind at the fall. But sin and evil itself predated Adam and Eve. And that is truth number two, which is Satan, the devil, is a fallen angel. I'm saving you the theology school here. But most Christians believe that God created an evil devil as part of his creation, and that is just frankly a lie and a misconception. Very few Christians know this. Before there was a fall of mankind in the garden, there was a fall of angels in the spirit realm. In the books of Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Revelation, I won't read them to you, you can read about what happened. So Satan was actually believed to be one of the highest angels. He was in charge of worship, and the scriptures call him beautiful, wise, and blameless. And then he led a rebellion. And he tried to take God's place, and he said, I will aspire to your place. And he took a third of the angels with him in leading this rebellion. And it didn't work out too well for him when he did that. In Luke 10, Jesus describes what he saw. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning before Adam and Eve. This is when sin first entered into existence, when Satan was a free-willed, good creation, in charge of worship, rebelled, had the possibility of evil and chose to rebel, brought evil into the world. And so Revelation tells us that he was swooped down or swooped down with the third of the angels and sent down to earth. And so somewhere after creation, but before the fall of man, there was the fall of angels. And again, this is when sin entered existence. And we know this is true because Jesus attributes all original sin and evil to Satan. Jesus in John 8 calls Satan the original murderer and calls him the father of lies. So before there was sin in mankind in the garden, there was sin and evil in the spirit realm. So again, God created angels as good and helpers and messengers of the kingdom. But even in heaven, they exercised their free choice and rebelled. So it's vitally important to know that this was never how God designed it to happen. He created all things good, and he created all things to have choice. Now, right now, you're probably thinking, well, wait, you're then saying that things happen outside of God's will? You better write I'm saying that. That's exactly what I'm saying. And here's the last truth for tonight, is that God is in charge, not in control. It's a very important distinction. God is in charge, but not in control. Now, this is where some people get upset with me, and I'm okay if you do, because they believe that the ultimate way, again, to ascribe all power and authority to God, to give him the highest declaration of praise and worship is to put every detail in all of creation and attribute it to him. And so they believe that everything that happens on earth is in direct command of his control. But if God controls everything, then God is indeed responsible for human suffering and trials and tribulations. If God controls everything, then God is actually responsible for your pain. Here's a good one. If God controls everything, then Satan is effectively a scapegoat 
who gets the blame for what God is actually doing if he controls everything. Are you with me? I would submit to you that God is sovereign, all-powerful, but he is not controlling every detail on earth. Instead, he's in charge. I did a study of the word of control. It's found a number of times in the New Testament, every single time, self-control. Every time. So this is a big statement, right? Maybe you're like, I didn't learn this. This is different than what I feel. So how do we know? Let me give you just a handful of examples that prove that God does not control, but is rather in charge. The first thing is that scripture explicitly declares that God has given dominion of earth over to man. It's Psalm 115, 16. It says, the highest of the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth has been given to man. While God is creator, he made us stewards of this earth. And he's given it to us to rule and to steward. The second thing is scripture reveals that Satan has stolen authority from man over the earth. Ephesians 2 says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air on this earth. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world, which is something you probably wouldn't say if you are in control of everything, right? And so Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world, but he says, guess what? After the resurrection, he will be driven out. So if God is in control, he's probably not in very good control if there's another ruler. And before Jesus leaves earth, he looks at the disciples and he says, all authority has been given to me, and I give it to you. To have authority over all the power of the evil one. The third thing is scripture tells us that not only does Satan have power, but he has power and influence in the earth. 1 John 5.19 says this, we are children of God. And the whole world is under the power of the evil one. That would seem to be a huge contradiction to the belief that God controls every detail on earth. We don't have a single passage in all the Bible that says God controls everything. But we have a really good passage right here that infers that Satan does. So if God controls everything, but also Satan has power on the earth, then how do you tell the works of God apart from the works of Satan? You can't. The fourth thing is that Jesus instructs us that we should pray for earth to be like heaven. You all have heard and probably recited the Lord's Prayer. Who knows the Lord's Prayer? Say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, right? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wait a second. We've recited all these prayers for all these years and missed theology lesson right there, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning that God's will isn't always being done on earth. You wouldn't need to pray for it if it was. If God's will was always happening on earth, Jesus would be like, and when you pray, thank the Father that all of his will is always done on earth. He didn't say that. And this, we have to wrestle with this, that we live in a world where we have a sovereign, wonderful, all-powerful God, but he doesn't get his way on this earth because he's in charge, not in control. We see this by the fifth proof of evidence here, which is that Jesus couldn't do miracles in his hometown. We don't like to, like, read those verses. We can, like, skip past them. 
But Mark 6, verse 5 says, And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's a very, very, very big deal that Jesus wanted to do something in his hometown but couldn't. It doesn't say wouldn't. It says couldn't. And I don't fully understand this verse, to be honest. But it indicates something about God that he respects and honors the free will of man to not control him. Another Bible trivia. What's the last fruit of the Spirit listed? Self-control. Why would God exercise control when the fruit of his Spirit is to not control others? We know we have the Spirit of God in us, and the fruit of it is that I don't control you. And so we completely contradict the fruit of his Spirit that believes that God is going to control everything. The sixth thing is that Jesus wept over Israel. Jesus came to save the lost, and when his own people rejected him, he wept. And he said this, he says, I long to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. He doesn't say, but my will was unwilling. He says, but your, you were unwilling. And Jesus would not be genuine in his weeping if God was controlling people's rejection of him. We've got a major character flaw with Jesus if he's manufacturing tears over something that he did on purpose. Why would Jesus weep if he was controlling people's response to him? The seventh thing is that Jesus repeatedly asked men and asked people to not interfere with his plan. It's a really odd thing. Like Jesus will heal somebody. Amazing. You can see. This is incredible. And he's like, don't tell anybody. You're like, but I was blind. And, you know, like, and you'll find it all throughout. Why? And you'll see Jesus multiple times escapes people. Why? Because it says that he knew that the people would make him king by force. Jesus, in his miracle making, had a reverence for man to actually interfere with what he was doing. Incredible. He was on a secret mission to defeat sin and death and knew that men somehow, some way, possibly could interfere and complicate it on earth. So he asked them to be quiet. Crazy. A couple more. Jesus halted storms. He didn't create them. We don't find anywhere in the scriptures like, oh, this is such a good tornado. I bless this tornado to go to that land. We just don't find it. And instead, we find Jesus rebuking the storms, which if he's creating storms for him to rebuke, to flex his muscles, we also have another character flaw in the man of Jesus. But no, we know that Jesus halts storms. He doesn't cause them. He did not create storms on earth. And whatever you're going through in your life, he did not cause a storm of your life right now. From silencing storms to telling mountains to be thrown in the sea, Jesus separates himself as superior to what nature does. Next is Jesus makes it perfectly clear who is responsible for suffering. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give life and life more abundantly. He puts it right there. He's like, there's some confusion around this topic. I'm going to make it crystal clear for you. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come to give life and life more abundantly. It's not that hard, but yet we're like, oh, gosh, you know, why is God giving me cancer? And I just think there's like this heavenly face palm that's going on in the heavens when we believe these things. And so he just makes it absolutely clear for us. 
the last thing on this for how do we know that God is in charge instead of control is that Jesus warns that we will all face tribulation. Jesus could not make it any clearer when he said it to his disciples in John 16, he says, the world will give you tribulation. Let me say that again. He looks at his disciples and says, the world is going to give you tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Doesn't sound like somebody who's controlling every detail of the world. So again, he's exercising his superior authority over the world, saying, I've overcome the world. I'm going to work with you, but the world is going to give you literal hell. But trust in me, and I'm going to help you overcome it because the world is fallen. Remember, Satan is the power at work on earth and is the one who is stealing, killing, and destroying. And guys, I've got dozens more of these things. But I want another margarita and maybe a cookie here in a little bit. But the proof is that God is not controlling the world and therefore is not responsible for trials and tribulations. And most importantly, he's not responsible for your pain and suffering. So maybe at this point you're like, well, what is God doing? Is he like somewhere off in heaven, like in some lounge chair and join heaven while evil runs rampant on the earth? Like what, if God is not doing this, what is he doing? And this is not the case at all. What is absolutely incredible is that we as believers and Christians never study God's answer to evil. Few people truly understand what God has given us to defeat evil and experience victory over the enemy. Very few people understand how to create a fortress around your life so that Satan is ineffective in taking control over you. Few people truly understand how the devil works in and through people we know and love and rulers and principalities. We don't understand how that works and how the devil has a will, and he's accomplishing that on earth as well. Few people truly understand how to convert your life so that you are not afraid of the devil, but the devil is afraid of you. Do you want to know all that? Are you ready? Let me tell you. When you come back next week around this time, and I will talk about that. So I'm going to leave this message there for us to return, but next week, I want to, I want to, first part is when we need to separate God's hand and fingerprint upon all of our suffering so we can be victorious against what real forces come against us. Because if you believe God is afflicting you, why would you resist? If you really thought this is God's plan for my life, anything to get better or to come out of it would actually be an act of rebellion. So now that I've hopefully maybe messed up some of your previous ideas, I want to talk about how do we live from a place of victory and not only just to, like, survive but to thrive. So the enemy has a blueprint and a plan, and if you don't know it, you're going to be his game all day long. So here's the main idea I want to leave you with tonight. is the biggest scandal in all of the universe is that Satan is stealing, killing, and destroying and yet has tricked you into believing it was God. Let me state that one more time. The biggest scandal in all the universe is that Satan is stealing, killing, and destroying, and yet has tricked you into believing it was all God.
And there are people here who are enduring trial after trial and people who have experienced horrible suffering who are asking, why God? And there are people who have experienced unimaginable pain and rejected God or maybe are unable to know how good God could exist and allow that. And there are people here who have been victimized and abused and we're told it's all part of God's plan. And I'm sorry. It's not the truth. My hope is that whatever lies and bonds and beliefs you've had about God and the pain of this world are completely broken. So next week, if you want to come back, we'll talk about being victorious. But I'm going to invite Eric Waterbury. He's going to close us in prayer. And if we can have the band come up, we're going to sing out one of my favorite songs, Reckless Love, which is just one of the best worship songs I know that paints the picture of God's heart for us. It's, it doesn't make sense. It's, he's coming and chasing after you. So with that, would you close us? So some of the story I'd like to tell you about Eric, Eric Knopf, uh, last night we got a, they got a phone call that his mom had a heart attack yesterday and that she would uh, go to surgery this morning at 9 o'clock. And she called to tell them that she loved them in case she didn't survive that surgery. It was a super powerful moment. Uh, we have an intercessors thread, and Camille put it in, in our intercessors. It's like a prayer thread on Group Me, and so anytime that we have something that needs to be prayed for, we pop it in that thread. Well, I saw it, so as soon as I saw it, I called Eric. I'm like, "Hey, how are you?" He goes, "Well, I just heard it, so I'm figuring that out." And I'm like, "Well, do you need you want me to call you back tomorrow?" He's like, "No, I think I'm all right." So we talked, and I prayed for him and uh, sent him Psalm 91. That's a powerful verse. If you're here tonight and you feel ripped on the inside, that your face looks like you're not because of what Eric shared, um, Psalm 91 is such a powerful psalm in the Bible. And um, so I, I put it on several threads, and I, lead, I love young adults. That's my jam. And so some of my young adults were like, well, is he gonna, he's not going to preach tomorrow night, is he? I'm like, well, yeah. And they're like, because, you know, young adults, and it's so cool right now. I mean, it's so, so much a part of our culture. You know, how do you feel? Don't say anything rude if you're not curious. Be curious. You know, what, what led you to feel that way? And, wow, I'm so sorry that happened. And that has a place. I'm not making fun of it. I'm learning those skills, thank God. Uh, but there's a time where you address the enemy and you tell him the place that he has. And if you've been raised up in theology or maybe you don't even know God or you don't have a relationship or some of us Christians have screwed you over so bad that you're not interested, you know, I mean, I'm a preacher's son and that was me for some years. In high school, I had acne really, really bad. I mean hideously bad. I had a woman walk up to me in a shopping mall and tell me, honey, I know something you should try for your face. One day the, the youth worker said, I want you to come up after school. I have something that I feel like the Lord has for you. So I ran over. I was in ninth grade. Run, you know, I was, no, I was a sophomore. <laughs> That's kind of embarrassing. And I ran to her house and she said, hey, I just feel like God wanted me to tell you that 
your acne is a blessing from God because if you hadn't had that, you'd have been really good looking. And I'm like, I'm sitting there, you know, I know I'm a preacher's son. I know I'm supposed to be good. So I did. I managed not to cuss or say anything that I really wanted to say. But it was things like that that broke me on the inside. You know, I was abused as a kid, which my parents didn't know about. When I took them, told them, they took me to my, my dad's friend for counseling, who was also a predator, and they didn't know about that. And so as I sorted all of this out, I'm not telling you this downer story, by the way, because it's not one. As I sorted all this out, the things that church people said to me, like, it would blow your mind, the things beloved church people say. You're like, man, there are some stupid Christians, you know? So if you're here tonight and uh, you've been, what's that? His mom is okay. Nothing, actually, they, it was an awesome report. And we do credit some of that. Just we, we had a bunch of people, about 20 people that just started praying. And we have sorted through those things that make you wonder, like, did God make, give Bonnie that heart attack to teach all of us something or make us more serious about serving him? We don't believe any of that stuff. But we actually, we have gotten to know the God who hears your heart, knows what you've been through, and wants you you, all of your brokenness, all of your mess, all the stuff you can't figure out. You know, you may be my age, 66, and this year I had to stay home at a bachelor party while everybody else went mountain biking because I couldn't keep up. I've never had that happen in my life. I absolutely freaking hated it. And so the Lord's going, Eric, I have something for you that you is far beyond if you will trust me in this season of your life. There are those of you here tonight and you don't know what you're doing. And these people don't know that because you're supposed to look cool or you may have status in this town or you know, in your company you have to maintain a certain level of uh, looking like you have it together. God knows, he wants you, you with all of your stuff. So I just encourage you, there are people like Eric and Camille, there's a lot of people that I've gotten to know in this crowd uh, over the last couple of years that are, they know the presence of God. They don't just know the verses of God. They know the presence of God. So if you're here tonight and you're broken on the inside or you're just kind of like bored with life and you'd like to find out like, okay, I've done everything else and I'm pretty successful. I wonder what a relationship with God would really be like. I just want to invite you as we sing this last song, which is such an anthem to who God really is, to just invite him to show you himself because he would love to do that.